0: Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Glad I could be with you here again. Thanks, Yana. I did enjoy my travels. Uh, Spent some time in Canada this past week. That was great. Uh, Everything was great except for my internet, which was actually kind of odd. It was actually quite strong internet. I thought for a little while I was going to be able to do everything, but then I found after using it a bit that it kept cutting out about every forty-five minutes for like five minutes at a time, and I thought that would be pretty inconvenient for uh, uh, for class. So I figured it'd be just easier to postpone to Sunday, as we as I had said was the likeliest backup option. So, um, uh, so that's where we are, and here we are. So. Thanks everybody for uh, uh, joining me. Uh, Good to see uh, such a good turnout here um, on uh, on 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 Sunday evening. But anyway, here we are. So um, uh, this I do hope. By the way, this coming week I'm going to be traveling again, but I hope to do. I I have good reason to believe I'm going to do class as usual. come back to that again at the end. So, all right, uh, before we get uh, going, just one quick announcement today, uh, and that is, uh, well, okay, yeah, one quick announcement, and that is just a reminder that the fall semester is closing in. Uh, It is August, what, 14th today, uh, and the uh, semester, the fall semester at Signum begins two weeks from tomorrow, so we're starting to get, uh, we're starting to get closer. To the time we're starting to get closer to the beginning of the semester, um, we have had uh, we've had a record number of of new applications this term. Really excited about all the new students who are joining us uh, this semester to uh, uh, to begin with us in our, uh, our our exciting new program, especially our Tolkien Studies program, but imaginative literature and Germanic philology as well. Um, so I hope that uh, if you haven't gotten a chance, that you'll still take the chance to go through and look at our program, think about. Uh, you know, if you would want to take our classes, maybe join our certificate program, um, would be really exciting. Still to have you, even though it's only two weeks, there still is uh, plenty of time uh, to get new applicants processed. So, just wanted to make sure you you knew that it was still available. But we are getting narrower uh, in our time frame before we before we fire up here. So, uh, wanted to make sure to uh, to bring that to your attention and make sure that you're that you're thinking about that. Uh, one other thing that I would say before we begin. Um, because I had to postpone everything from this past week. This is my third class session today. Uh, I did Silmarillion Film Project uh, earlier this afternoon and then my weekly Griff Lit Lotro stream after that, uh, which means that tonight, this is the fifth and sixth hours today in which I'm going to be broadcasting. Uh, I'm hoping that my voice will hold up fine. I'll probably get a bit hoarse before the end of class. Uh, So I just uh, ask you guys to bear with me. Uh, as'll uh, try to uh, I, I hope my uh, my voice will will hold out uh, the whole time. Um, but anyway, just so, just so that you don't <clears throat> think there's something terribly wrong with me if I start to sound uh, kind of froggy before the end. All right. Um, so let us begin with the Hlamas, which we didn't do last time, and of course uh, it meant that last. Week's class was one of those uh, uh, tragic comic moments, which have happened before, goodness knows, when the part of the class session that I take as the title for the whole class. Uh, we don't even get to, <laughs> so I hate it when that happens. But there it was. Happened again last week. Um, you may remember that I entitled the last class "The Tree of Tongues," uh, and I want to. So I want to remind you of that at the beginning, uh, because of course that's what I want to re- be really shining the spotlight on um, the concept of the tree of tongues. Now I haven't. Uh, uh, scanned or transcribe the Tree of Tongues. Um, the any of the three versions of the Tree of Tongues. Uh, I really leave those to you to study, and and of course there's all of this commentary uh, on it. You know that uh, throughout the Hlamas and and uh, Christopher's commentary on the Halamas, uh, which should help with that. I didn't want to get into the details. Um, of the Tree of Tongues, like which languages are related to each other and, and, and to what degree and everything. Not that that isn't interesting or important, of course, um, but just because that's not where I really wanted the focus of our discussion to be. I want to look at kind of the bigger picture. Um, and I want to be understanding... For me, the most important thing about the Hamas, and and again, let me say at the beginning, and this is something I, I have confessed before and will confess many times again, I am not an expert on Tolkien's languages. I am not first and foremost a language guy um, I, my own attraction to Tolkien and relationship with Tolkien comes in from, from the story side um, and I, you know, I read Tolkien and love Tolkien because I, I love his stories and love his books and although I have always admired and been interested in his languages I've never studied them uh, I, I've never studied them rigorously um, and I don't know them that well and I'm not much of a linguist myself that's always my sort of disclaimer that I make at the beginning. And I th- and, and so, therefore, um, know that when we talk about the Hlamas, you are, in a sense, getting a very amateur perspective from me, because I'm not a philologist, and I can't really talk with Tolkien on this subject. But my hope is that I can help other amateurs like me. Um, and most importantly, and what I hope to do today, is to kind of put... The Hamas as a work in the context of what Tolkien's doing here in the Silmarillion, and try to understand like what does this mean like again, not working out the details of again as I said of the languages, but what is this text doing, or what does this what is the significance of the Hamas what what can we get from it um and I, uh, uh, I hope then of course, yes, as Sharon is reminding me, if you do love the languages, we do have courses uh, for that at Signum University, uh, So I've, uh, where I've tried to gather uh, people who know so much more than I do uh, about this. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. There's lots of resources for people who do like this kind of thing, uh, even though it's not what I do. But anyway, so we're, we're going to look at the lamas and look at the significance of this, not just in the immediate context of this... Would be published Silmarillion, right? That we've been looking at for for several weeks now, but of, uh, um, but to be thinking about it in the, even the larger context of Tolkien's own imaginative process, and I want to. Um, I want to start off looking at that. I mean, exactly. Yana is just saying, you know, for Tolkien, this is what it was all about, wasn't it? Exactly, Yana. That's, that's exactly what I, what, what I want to look at. Through the, the Hlamas, and by reading the Hlamas, I want to be able to come, because I feel like I have been able to come to an understanding, a much better understanding, of what Tolkien meant when he said that the root of his work was philological. Like, uh, to some extent, I think that his philological work is sufficiently alien to me. Again, alien, not just in the sense that I'm not myself a linguist, um, and not just in the sense that I don't have... Uh, that I I, I don't make up languages myself, I'm not a creative linguist, but that I'm not a creative philologist, which is what Tolkien was. Um, And there aren't now that many of those out there. It's relatively rare. Um, But anyway, what does it mean uh, when he says these things? So let's let's start um, in what will probably be a a, a familiar place. This is a passage that you have probably all heard before, and that is... um, it, from the preface to the second edition, or the the forward to the second edition uh, of The Fellowship of the Ring. And this is, of course, the very famous forward in which... This is where he talks about allegory and how he's always cordially disliked allegory and, and all... So, I mean, you, you, whether you have read this carefully and know it by heart, many people do, you know, know it really, really well, um, th- this, this, this stuff should be pretty familiar to you. And, and so I just wanted to remind you of this thing that he says about the Silmarillion, he doesn't name it by name, um, but his reference to these texts that we're discussing right now, right? Uh, he says, this is, of course, he's talking about the, the Lord of the Rings, "'It was begun soon after The Hobbit was written, and before its publication in 1937. But I did not go on with this sequel,' For I wished first to complete and set in order the mythology and legends of the Elder Days, which had been taking shape for some years." Okay, so in this book, The Lost Road, this is what we're reading, right? The work that he had, the fruit of his work of completing and setting in order the mythology and legends of the Elder Days, right? Okay. I desired to do this for my own satisfaction. And I had little hope that other people would be interested in this work, especially since it was primarily linguistic in inspiration, and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. When those whose advice and opinion I sought corrected little hope to no hope... And then he goes on to explain how he returned to the sequel and, 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 and talked about the development of the Lord of the Rings, right? So a couple things that you'll notice here, right? One is, he says he desired to do this for his own satisfaction, and had little hope that other people would be interested in this work. That's might be true, in a sense, but he's being a little bit shy here, right? That makes it sound like he never even sought publication. Of course, we know he did seek publication, right? So he had enough hope that other people would be interested in this work, that he sent it off to the publisher, right? Um, Who who Rejected it very politely and kindly, uh, and asked him if he couldn't please write a sequel to The Hobbit instead. So, um, I'm not saying he's being totally disingenuous here, but he's he's definitely sort of putting a particular spin on that situation, right? Um, but to me, um, to me, the the most interesting thing is that last sentence. And what what to me is interesting about this is. Well, I think back to the understanding of that I always had, you know, when in, in, in earlier days reading this. Um, I had little hope that other people would be interested in this work, especially since it was primarily linguistic in inspiration and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish Tongue. So what does it mean when he says... What does he exactly mean when he says it was primarily linguistic and inspiration okay that's that's and, and now again let, let me let me let me uh back up even one step further. Um, yeah, M- Marie points out that it was the publisher who was one of the people who was correcting little hope to no hope. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, really, the primary voice in that conversation, Marie. Uh, absolutely. Um, so let me before I, before I return to that question of what does primarily linguistic and inspiration actually mean. Um, back up one step further and say, I always thought this was really harsh of Tolkien on himself. Really, um, that is the, the or harsh on the people you know publishers and others who were saying uh, that there was little hope that anyone would enjoy this work, um, and that people corrected that little hope to no hope, because I'm thinking right when I'm when I when, I, when always when I was reading this um, earlier on, um, I was thinking of the published *Umarilian*, right. I mean, of course, right? Like, the Silmarillion, this is what, this is what he's talking about, right? He's, clearly, when he talks about the mythology and legends of the Elder Days, it's the Silmarillion material that he's talking about, right? So, in my head, I'm picturing the published Silmarillion. And, like, okay, I mean, the Silmarillion's tough, right? Lots of people try to read it and fail it. I tried to read it and fail it. I tried to read it and failed at first, right? So, that's quite, but, like, no hope. Like, there's no hope uh, that anyone else is going to be interested in it, right? I mean, Really? That seems a little harsh. Uh, and, or, and it seems even a little bit strange that he would think or s- even say that he thought that there was little hope that anyone would be interested in it, right? Uh, in the Silmarillion, in the published Silmarillion, right? Um, so that, that was always something that I kind of, even before we got to the primarily linguistic and inspiration part of it, that whole frame was a little bit tough for me to understand. Like, is he, was he just being, was he just kind of, you know, downplaying it? Or what? You know, how were, how were we able to understand that? Um, but of course, the problem was, I'm thinking of the 1977 published Silmarillion. It's not the 1977 published Silmarillion that he's talking about, right? Um, now with our through our reading of The Lost Road here, we can know exactly what Tolkien was referring to. And looking at this set of works, the Annals, the Ainulindale, the Hlamas, the Quenta Silmarillion and possibly the Embarcanta uh, from back in the shaping of Middle Earth, it's much easier to see what he means and why he would say he had little hope that other people would be interested. And it, it's much easier to agree about the no hope part, especially when thinking about the chlamas, right? Um, it's 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 much easier. Um, much easier to think about that. Uh to, to understand where he was coming from because, I mean, like now, again, I know there's some of you who are totally into his languages and, and for those of you who love the Elvish languages, the Hlamas is like incredibly rich and like the, you know, it's like the magic text right? I, I, I get that. I totally understand that. Um, it's like the missing key of everything <laughs> in some senses, right? I mean, it's awesome totally understand but I'm not talking to you talking to everybody else, to all of you out there who are not totally into Tolkien's languages, um, you have to admit that the Hlamas is kind of tough sledding, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, um, yes, as Nancy Fosberg says, I love the Hlamas, but I would not want to be responsible for selling the Hlamas. Uh, yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think that's a really good way to think about it, Nancy. Um, Absolutely. So, anyway, okay, but let me go back to this other other question. What does he mean when he says it was primarily linguistic and inspiration, and was begun in order to provide the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues? So he had... So, again, projecting backwards 20 years in my own experience, when I was reading this 20 years ago... uh, I was like, okay, so, uh, uh, for Elvish tongues. 20 years ago, I'm like, okay, so there are two Elvish tongues, right? Sindarin and Quenya. Um, So he needed, like, background... For the, and I, I had a hard time understanding what it, what he was talking about, really, when he says the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues. I will admit, for a long time, I just kind of nodded and was like, "Hmm, yeah." Necessary background of history, because what I didn't understand was that he was thinking philologically, right? He was thinking about the changes of language, the development of language over time, and how like history is required for that, right? In order to be able to say these two languages both came from this other origin language. But they got more diverse, more different from each other over time. That requires a story. Well, why did the speakers of those two languages go different ways, right? Um, where did they both come from? That they both start from the same route, and how did they get to where they're going? Like, it is, that is a question that demands um, that demands a story, right? So, but even when I began to understand that, I had a vastly oversimplified. Uh, understanding of that. And also I will say um, I had the basic sense that he was, well, okay, I was about to say that he was exaggerating, but that's not quite fair. That when he says the stories like the, the actual history and mythology provided the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues, that like the, the Elvish tongues themselves might have served as the inspiration. Like, I was willing to take his word for it, that he started off by inventing languages and the history of languages and the stories grew around that, right? But I still thought of the languages themselves as like the seed from which the story grew. Um, so that the the sort of the ling- because I had this simplified version of the linguistic situation in my head, two languages, right? Two languages, they're related to each other. How complicated could that be, right? I did not have the tree of tongues in my head, um, so uh, I, I was just, you know I, I was like, okay, so that's the that's the that's the germ, right? And the story puts out branches and 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 gets more complicated from there. That's again, that was certainly my thinking. Um, the thalamus. Reading and studying the Klamas opens up whole new worlds of understanding exactly what Tolkien means when he says that his stories, his mythology, the history and mythology of the elder days, was primarily linguistic and inspiration. And I hope that we'll be able to see, as we look a little bit more deeply at the Klamas tonight, how exactly that works. Um, And I'll try to show you the difference between how I now look at this passage 20 years from, you know, compared to how I did 20 years ago. Um, but, um, let's, uh, um, let's start, um, let's start with the, some of the metatextual stuff. Notice the frame to begin with, right? Um... And this is important, right? Okay, so, so once again, we're in Lost Tales world, right? Um, here's the cover page of, of this section, the Hlamas. This is the account of tongues which Pengaloth of Gondolin wrote in later days in Tol Erasea, using the work of Rumil, the Sage of tune This account Alfwinna saw when he came into the West. At the head of the page is written three Silmarillion. Right, so again, it's it's very clear. This is one of the sections of the Silmarillion. So first of all, it's very clear, as we've seen, the Silmarillion was a multipartite work. Right, it was going to have these different sections, the annals. And the, so the Lamas is one of the sections of the Silmarillion, um, and it's being put within the same frame. Right, so we've got we've got the 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 work of those two elvish scholars, right, Pengalov of Gondolin and Rúmil, who's sometimes called Pengalov. Uh, with the uh, with the there and sometimes uh, Pengalod with a D, um, Pengalod of Gondolin and Rúmil of Toon, right the 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 the, the, Be- the Beleriandic scholar and the Valinorian scholar, um, whom we first met in discussing the Annals here uh, in the Lost Road. And uh, okay, so so we've got them and we've got Alfwinna, right, the human witness who comes into the West. Uh, and hears the stories and gets the texts and and either sort of transcribes or or, uh, or memorizes the stories and records them later on. We'll come back to 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 the frame uh, when we look at the when we move on to the Quintus Silmarillion, which we're totally getting to tonight. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, so we have this operating within the same frame. So it's certainly not that in the Hlamas we have Tolkien indulging. In just sort of a personal revelation, right? This is not just him saying, "Okay, here's my thoughts about how these languages work." This is supposed to be part of the part of the found text, right? Um, the Elvish scholars themselves have un unra- have been working. There, you know, we have these industrious Elvish philologists who have been unraveling the interrelationship among all of the different languages. Okay, um, so uh, okay, okay. Um, That's just interesting to see that it's looped in with the same context, and he's still maintaining the sort of Book of Lost Tales throwback that we saw him introducing before, and we talked about that some when we were looking at the Book of Lost Tales. Um, So, okay, so the central content of the Hlamas is the discussion of the evolution of tongues. Um, I don't have that much to add to Christopher Tolkien's commentaries about you know, how the languages are related to each other and he gets really into it and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna uh talk about all the really learned stuff, but I do have a stupid question. Um I, I don't know if this same simple well let me say simple, it's not really a stupid question, but it's a simple question, uh that uh that came to my mind, you know, while studying the llamas, and that is, um wait a second, why are these languages changing over time anyway, right? I mean, like, I totally get how human languages change over time, right? One generation to another, and the different sort of culture, the cultural circumstances change over time, and as one generation succeeds another, you know, the language changes and drifts, and that makes all kinds of sense, right? Why not? Totally understand that. But among immortals, why should that happen, right? I mean, uh, I've known lots of people, for instance, who have lived... Who have you know been born and raised with the accent of one district, are transplanted and go to live and are completely surrounded by people whose accent is quite different, and yet they retain their native accent throughout the rest of their lives, right? Uh, because they still remember perfectly well how you know people spoke w- wherever it was that they were born and raised, right? Well, presumably the elves will re- all remember perfectly, answer or perfectly clearly, you know how. Um, how how the languages were uh, spoken, you know, before. Um, so even the you know even talking about shifts that are happening over thousands of years, what's that to the immortals, right? So this seems to be a, a fairly obvious question, right? To kind of to kind of start out with. Let's let's make sure you know, Professor Tolkien, we're understanding why is it that we're talking about language shifts at all, especially these kinds of complex and comparatively rapid and comparatively. Um, uh, pronounced shifts in these languages um, among, you know, when we're talking about a single speaker you know, like not just like a group of people, again, not, not, a, not, a, not a revolving population, but like you're supposed to you're, you're, you're expecting me to believe that somebody like Thingol, right, who spoke the same language with his brother Olway you know, and uh, and at least a very similar language to his close friend Finwë, right? Um, and that when he meets Finwë's sons later on, they speak languages which sound totally different, right? Um, you know, one sounds like Welsh and the other sounds like Finnish. Like, why? Why should Thingol's own language change so much? Um, uh, why should you know, the Noldors lives change so much? Well, let's look at Tolkien's answers to these questions, because he, he does talk about this, and he talks about it in a couple places. Um, the speech of the Valar changes little, for the Valar do not die. Right? Neither do the elves, right? Um, but, of course, he acknowledges... So notice that he begins by acknowledging the, f- the concept that immortality can and might, in fact, make a language much less varying, right? The Valar don't change their language, um, and the, the Valar—so, you know, the language that, that Varda spoke, you know, that Orame spoke when he came upon the Elves at Quivienin is still pretty much the same language that the Valar speak now. So, so we do have that—he acknowledges that correlation. Okay, and before the sun and moon, it altered not from age to age in Valinor. But when the Elves learned it, they changed it from the first in the learning. And soften its sounds, and added many and they added many words to it of their own liking and devices, even from the beginning. For the elves love the making of words, and this has ever been the chief cause of the change and variety of their tongues. And this is lovely, isn't it? Isn't that fun? Isn't that wonderful? Why does Elvish language change? Not because elves themselves are, you know, like flighty and don't remember and, and they're like but because they love language. Right? Because they love language invention, because they can't stop themselves making words, and even again, it's not like they they you know remembered um, uh, the the Valar's language poorly or something, right? I mean, they're still speaking to the Valar themselves, so they could easily refresh their memories if they wanted to and brush up, you know, on their on on, on the tongue of the Valar if they wanted to. But even at the very beginning. They were like, ooh, let's do it differently, right? Let's make it sound different from that. Um, uh, exactly, uh, uh, Mary, they're playing with language, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's about their love, and Nancy, yeah, in that way they are like Tolkien himself. Um, and, Nancy, I agree, this passage is emphatically Tolkienian, as Marie uh, Prosser says, he made the elves in his own image. Marie, it reminds me of that... Um, of that passage in um, uh, in in on fairy stories, right? When he talks about man as sub creator and says man is not only made but made in the image and likeness is made in the image of a maker, right? Men um, you know, being you know humans being sub creative because we're made in the image of God. Well, the elves are. Linguistic and philological, and delight in the sound of words because they were made in the image of somebody uh, who loves the making and sound uh, of words and language. So, the language of the elves changes on purpose because they embrace the change of their language. It is a reflection of their own. Well, I, I mean, I, I I use the word creativity because that's. The word that we would use tolkien wouldn 't have been quite comfortable i mean sub creativity really but um, but it's it 's an expression of their own inventiveness of of what they do, therefore, why does Thingle's language change, and why, when he meets again the sons of his old friend Finway, do they not speak the same language anymore? Because their experiences have been different, the things that they have seen and loved and done, and the new words they have introduced, which has itself led to the changing of sounds, and adaptation of sounds to different circumstances, and just experiencing different things, and therefore saying different things. Because language is not something that happens to elves, but something that they choose to do. I, I often... Notice more and more the older I get, Um, the unconscious change that happens to modern language, right? That I see happening around me, right? Like, and this, 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 this—I'm sure you've all had this experience. You have it a lot more, trust me, when you grade a lot of introductory freshman English papers um, of people who use expressions, and they're using the expression right. But their spelling betrays the fact that they don't know what they're talking about, right? They don't. They don't really know what the thing means, right? Um, and then over time, the new spelling and the new, you know, becomes, um. It becomes a thing of its own, right? So to give two examples, um, uh, well, okay, I'll, all right, I'll restrict myself to one example. Um, one of the expressions that my, uh, my old freshman students, um, could never, um. Uh, seemed almost never to get right was the expression towing the line, like you're expected to toe the line. Um, and of course, the correct spelling of that phrase is T-O-E, the line, right? Like to line up with your toes on the line so that you're all in order, right? And almost all of my, of my freshman English students spelled it T-O-W, the line, like you're hauling in a line, which metaphorically makes not the least sense at all. Marie gives another really good example, um, of, uh, of baited breath, B-A-I-T-E-D, right? Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's like, yeah, Marie, that doesn't make any sense either. You're not putting bait on anything. i trying to lure anything in, right? You are abating your breath, but, but yeah, it's, you. so, so again, that's what I mean when I talk about unconscious changes, right? Like, you're The usage of language sort of deviates from the original. And this is how you end up having a word which ends up turning into meaning something the opposite of what it uh, what it meant before, Um, which happens all the time. Like the word awful, for instance, Um, uh, the or or the word terrific. Right. Um, uh, Anyway, so I mean, that's that's, you know, I mean, think about the word terrific. Right, um, it, it means inspiring terror, literally. Right, but that's not how we use it anymore. Right, how did that happen? And <laughs> how did the word terrific come to mean its current modern meaning? Well, that's a that's a that's an inadvertent change. Right, nobody was like, ah, let's creatively use it in this other way. It's just kind of confusion, and over time, it sticks. Um, so, but elves don't do that, right? Uh, the change of the, uh, the 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 so again the elvish linguistic situation they embrace change they love it, um, and they do it on purpose in order to express different things and in order to find new ways uh, to get just like they're always going around naming things. Um, it's not just like the things that are being named. It's almost like the, their entire experience is receiving as they themselves mature and grow and change and have different experiences. The the filter through which they are at the very least expressing and to some extent even, uh, even interpreting their circumstances has to be modified continuously, right? And so, of course, you wouldn't expect that the language of two elves who have had vastly different life experiences and who have this attitude toward language uh, would, um, would, would be the same at all. So here's, um, here's another account of the same kind of thing. Ah uh, their tongues, therefore, changed in the slow rolling of the years, even in Valinor, for the elves are not as the gods, but are children of earth. Yet they changed less than might be thought in so great a space of time, for the elves in Valinor did not die, and in those days the trees still flowered, and the changeful moon was not yet made, and there was peace and bliss." Nonetheless, the elves much altered the tongue of the Valar, and each of their kindreds after their own fashion. The most beautiful and the least changeful of these speeches was that of the Lindar, and especially the tongue of the house and folk of Ingwe. Okay, so um, so that their tongues change in the slow rolling of the years. Um, so notice the, the emphasis there. On the one hand, the elves are not the gods, right? They're children of the earth, which means they themselves are changeful. So again, they embrace the change of language but here what he's what i hear him emphasizing anyway is how they themselves change right the valar themselves change little over time their language changes little because they change little right the elves themselves change a lot because they are children of the earth right and lest we think that the changes in their language happened sort of surprisingly quickly he sort of says, well, like, compared to human languages they changed quite slowly, right? Um, I mean, the elves are over in Valinor for a long time. Remember the annals? Right? The elves are over there in Valinor for thousands of years. Think about how much, you know, think about the change from you know, from from Latin to the Romance languages that happened in a thousand years, right? Think about the difference between modern English and English you know, the Anglo-Saxon English of a thousand years ago. Um, You know, the 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 Elvish languages had much, much more time than that, and yet, uh, you know, they they, they they changed exactly. Marie, English has changed a lot since eighty-eight hundred. Um, so, so he is saying, compared to human languages, they change really slowly, but um, but they do, they do still change because the elves themselves are changing. So, so remember, this is in the Undying Land. He's talking about it. He's talking about the elves of Valinor, right? Um, in the Undying Land. The Undying Land is not a land of stasis, that Elves remain children of Earth, even when they're living in Valinor and among the gods, right, among the Valar themselves. Even though, and this, uh, this fact, which is again uh, a kind of thing, um, we've come across this, again if you've been... Studying the rest of the history of Middle Earth series with us, we've come across this several times before. This question of of the the, the new the the change in the atmosphere and how change accelerates after the the moon and sun arise. Um, and I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read those things, I'm always I was never quite sure how metaphorically to take that. Right? You know, like okay, does he mean that at that point the world kind of begin like? the pace of events accelerate, right? So things, I mean, just as we saw, like, the Annals of Valinor and their long, long years compared to the the quick pace, even of the the, the extended, revised, longer, 200 years longer uh, uh, s- selection of the Annals of Valinor, of the the Annals of Valerian, right? That stuff happens more quickly. Um, events really get rolling when the sun and moon rises. And so, therefore, it seems really breathless, you know, so... When, the Valar, when even the Valar, perhaps, look back on time since the rising of the sun and moon, they're like, wow, boy, that's, that seemed to pass in a snap, right? Compared to the long, lingering days of the trees. But he clearly means more than that, right? He doesn't just mean that it seems like time passes quickly or that events come to pass more frequently. He means there is some actual influence to increase the pace of change. The elves themselves change more, their languages change more quickly after the sun and moon rise than they did before. What is precisely the mechanism of that? What kind of power or influence do the sun and moon have? Or in what ways has Iluvatar brought about a change to sort of the nature of the cosmos? You know, it's not... He doesn't spell out the mechanism exactly, but he does seem to suggest, and the Lamas I think makes it clearer than most of the other references we've gotten like this, that he really means it quite literally. Um, that change happens more, and things actually move uh, move quicker and change and age and die faster after the rise of the sun and the moon than they did beforehand. Um, and, uh, of course, the least changeful um, of course the most beautiful and the least changeful of the speeches of the elves was that of the Lindar, who are going to be called the Vanyar later on, right? The uh, the folk of Ingwe. Why should it make sense that it's the most beautiful and least changeful of the speeches? Well, of course it makes sense, right? Because uh, Manwe is the poetry guy, right? So he's the one who specializes in beautiful speech, and they hang out with him a lot, right? So beautiful speech, right, would make sense that their language itself, not just the poetry that they make with with their language, but that their language it sh- itself should be the most beautiful, and it makes sense that it would be the least changeful, because they are the ones who are sort of most in tune with the Valar, and it would make sense that you would expect the Lindar who will become the Vanyar later on, um, to be sort of keeping their speech closer, to be altering it less from uh, the speech of the Valar than uh, the rest of them did. So, okay, you know, that sort of makes sense. And this is, of course, part of the... He moves on from here to talk about the story of how Quenya began and how this, this language became the sort of Elf Latin Right, that we get uh, uh, that we get referred to, um, and Marie. Good, yes. They also have least interaction with the other peoples. That also would make sense as to why it would also be uh, another reason why it would be least changeful because it had this a smaller number of influences. Um, okay, let's um, let's go back to my question from before the histories and, mytho- you know, the the, the the mythology and histories of the, and, you know, and legends of the elder days were primarily linguistic in inspiration, right? Is he exaggerating there? What exactly does that mean? How far down does that go? Again, is it just the, language, the languages and the concept of the language shift serving as the seed for the larger stories and then they grow and get more complicated? Or how far down um, can we really go with that? Well, let me look at... Uh, uh, a very specific example here. And this is the stuff where I find the Hlamas most um, most illuminating. Even for non- non-linguists. non It is elsewhere told how Sindu, brother of Elway, who I think, you know, people talk a lot about Turin's names and how many names that Turin has, but when you look historically, uh, you know, when you start with reading with the Book of Oz Tales and go through I think Thingol wins for largest number of names, uh, and variants of spellings and everything. Tinwellent, Tinway, Blinto. Anyway, yeah, Tinwellent is kind of cool, Nancy, I agree. But anyway, so now he's Sindow. Okay, how Sindow, brother of Elwë, lord of the Teleri, strayed from his kindred, and was enchanted in Beleriand by Melian, and came never to Valinor. And he was after called Thingol, and was king in Beleriand of the many Teleri, who would not sail with Ulmo for Valinor, but remained on the Falasse, and of others that went not because they tarried searching for Thingol in the woods. And these multiplied, and were yet at first scattered far and wide between Aridlinden and the sea, for the land of Beleriand was very great, and the world was then still dark." But in, in the course of ages, the tongues and dialects of Beleriand became altogether estranged from those of the other Eldar and Valinor, though, they learn, though the learned in such lore may perceive that they were anciently sprung from Telerian. Okay. Um, all right, so... I point to this as an example. Because, I, again, thinking back of that question, right, those stories were primarily linguistic and inspiration. And again, I ask the question, how far down into the details does that go? When I read something like this in the Hlamas, in the context of the Tree of Tongues, right, you've got to go back to the Tree of Tongues, um, and you look at the, the, the Tree of Tongues, which is like a guide. You know, it's like a map legend, of the whole, of all the stories, right? So, why? You know, I'm always hesitant to ask why questions because why questions seem to invite uh, answers that are of a wholly different kind than what I really intend. Um, so, if I ask a question like, why did Tolkien decide to have this random Telerian elf marry, you know, one of the Einar? Um, which is unique, you know, in his stories. why, why does he make that happen at all? Why here? Um, why this guy? Um, why does this, you know, why does this stuff happen? When I ask those why questions, it might seem to that I'm like trying to get inside Tolkien's head. But when I say why, I don't mean what, you know motivated Tolkien exactly or like what was Tolkien thinking? But I actually think we can. The tree of tongues helps us to get kind of closer to even almost that kind of an answer. Um, and I'm not. I'm certainly not asking for like a psychoanalytic answer to that question. But the tree of tongues gives a reason for all these things, right? Um, all of these stories had to be. Or again, if you ask a question. Um, why do we get so many subdivisions of the Teleri in the Silmarillion, right? I mean, this drives people bonkers. It's one of the things that drives people away from the Silmarillion is when they're like, wait, who's the—and what's a Calaquendi again? And who are the Nandor, and why are they doing this? And the Green Elves, for crying out loud. I mean, you get you, lots of people—there's a lot of agita about this among first-time Silmarillion readers. And a lot of people are like, what the heck is going on here, Right. When you read the Hamas, and you're looking at the Tree of Tales, or the Tree of Tongues, rather, sorry, that was, a, maybe, I don't know if I've made that slip before tonight. Of course, I, it makes me think of the Tree of Tales, which is the phrase that he uses uh, in, uh, in, uh, on fairy stories, his essay, um, which I think is a really interesting kind of crossover that he uses uh, those metaphors, um, both for his linguistic tree and for uh, the, the, that, that concept of the interrelationship and sort of organic relationship of, of stories over time, as he's talking about it on fairy stories. When you look at these stories in the context, all those things that seem so confusing in the Silmarillion, in the context of the Tree of Tongues, it all makes sense, right? I buy this, right? He wants to have... So what are we getting because Melian comes over, and marries Thingol, we get a sub. I mean, notice just again. Look, look back in this. Do you see the number of different linguistic and philological situations that are created by this story? Right. Okay. So sindo brother of Elwë. So we have two sort of patriarchal figures who are both Telerian, right? Both speaking the same language, and they split. One. Wanders off and and they they split and they never meet again, right? So okay, so we, we already have now a story that explains how these this these two subgroups of the same ultimate language uh, uh, of the same original language Telerian ended up being divided. Now, but how are they divided, right? What's the difference? Well, well, okay. One difference that you can see right away in the language of Thingle is that. It's influenced more directly by the, uh, by the language of the Valar because he marries Melian, who speaks the language of the Valar, right? So, from and through Melian, we get a. Sh- so, we have, you know, so there's the language of the Valar from which Telerian was derived, right? And this substrain of the Telerian language is kind of brought back closer to the original language of the Valar because of his marriage with Melian, right? But wait! Notice, but but wait. There's more, right? It's not just the two, Ose, or Sindo and I almost said uh, I'll say and Elway, right? It's, it's it's not just those two. But wait, um, many of the Teleri who would not sail with Olmo for Valinor but remained on the Falasse. Ah, third group, right? Okay, so now of so you you had the two brothers Telerian brothers, right? And then one of them kind of split again. He didn't personally split, right? Um, but his language group split again, so we had the Telerian subgroup, which was influenced directly by the Valar by the language of the Valar uh, through Melian, and then you had the second Telerian group, which split off and is not identical to the other because it doesn't have the same influence through Melian. Um, but it does stay in Beleriand and has close political relationships because he becomes the ruler of those who—he's king in Beleriand of the many Teleri who would not sail with Olmo for Valinor but remained in the Falasse, right? So he's their king, so their language begins to—is more heavily influenced by him and sticks with his, and is. but it's still distinct—, it's still distinct. Right, because those are different elves living in different circumstances, and they think of all the influence with the sea, right, and their life by the sea. So their language reflects not only in vocabulary but in its form their life by the sea. But it's closer and affiliated with the language of of uh, um, of Thingol, right, uh, and 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 Melian. But then you've got still that original strand of Teleriian, which goes with the brother, right, the other brother over into Valinor, and now it's living in Valinor, and it's going to develop in a third uh, and different way. So the Tree of Tongues, it's like the key to all this. We can see him lay these things out. We can see the different strains of these different languages, and what's influencing which and how those work. And when you look at the Tree of Tongues, and you put it next to this story, all of a sudden, I now believe right whereas before i was always, i was willing to buy into the idea that you know his linguistic invention served as the seed bed out of which the stories grew now i, I take it back now, I'm will, now i now i begin to see the tree of tongues helps me to understand how historical his philological imagination already was because he had imagined the telerian language splitting into all these different ways. There have to be stories to explain all this, right? And so can I believe that he made the Tree of Tongues first and then the stories emerged out of that? Yes, I can believe that. Yes, I can believe that that's more or less how it worked with him. Now, I mean, obviously there's some symbiosis there, right? We see the revisions of the of the Tree of Tongues, uh, and I don't doubt that the stories themselves came to influence the Tree of Tongues. Um, but if you think about it from a non... If you think about the Silmarillion stories from a non-philological standpoint, it seems especially those splittings of peoples and people groups, it seems kind of random, right? I mean, I... I you know, for instance, if the Silmarillion were submitted to a modern publisher out of the blue, I mean, assuming they were even willing to read it, they would be like, okay, can we simplify this here? Right. A modern editor would come back to Tolkien and be like, dude, way too many people groups, right? Can we, can, we, can we streamline this a little bit? There isn't any need for so many different and yet distinct groups of interrelated peoples, right? Um, surely we can simplify that a little bit. Yeah, because there's no need from a just a, a simple story point of view. If all you're doing is telling stories, no, there isn't any need. But linguistically, there is a need when you think about it philologically, from the point of view of the tree of tongues. Every single people group represents a linguistically unique situation, right? And uh, you see him, you see him bringing up uh, all of these. Different philological situations, right? I'll give some more in, some more instances in a minute. But first, let's just pause to sort of appreciate the bigger situation, right? I believe that the tree of tongues in the *Hlámas* represents what really is the heart of the Silmarillion, um, because again, it's not just about with Tolkien, not with the Elves, but with Tolkien, it's not just about language invention. To Tolkien, didn't just mean making up languages it meant it's so much more than that. You know, that Tolkien is fascinated not just by the internal workings of language itself, um, but their descents and influences and changes and in interrelationships and how you can get from one original language and from that original language end up with this wildly complex ecosystem of languages, right? Um, that's what language invention meant to Tolkien. Um, and you know, all of these different, you know, thinking of, and he's fascinating, fascinated both in the branches and in the roots, right, of this development. And in the Hlamis we can see him playing with this stuff. Um, and again, I think it's it's almost like it's almost like a a, a sort of a a test case. Well, not a test case, this is a dumb way to put it. Um, when studying like real-world philology, right, there are all these different kinds of languages that are in different kinds of relationships to each other, right? Different ways in which you get you know, two languages which are closely related to each other, um, but have gone in Anyway, have ended up going in very different directions, so they're they're, they're rather unlike each other now. Um, or you'll get two languages which seem totally unrelated, but if you go back far enough, you can see where they came from. So all of the different, it's it's almost like the tree of tongues is like Tolkien seems to be, as if it's Tolkien experimenting with like almost every possible philological situation or scenario. Um, and the way that he kind of explores... because he loves thinking about it, right? Start with an original language and then see, like, well, but what if this happened? Oh, and what if this happened, right? Let's do um, let's do them, you know, changing because they were removed geographically. And how would that work out philologically? That'll be fun to play with, right? So, again, remember this is all from an invention standpoint, right? So, hey, won't it be fun to do two languages, uh, you know, to, to, to show how these two languages would have developed when they were geographically separated? But then... But that's not enough, right? What about all this other richness of possibility? Again, the ones that are separated by by geography, but not that much geography, and there's a political affiliation, so it's going to be different, but not that different. How would that look, right? And oh, and and what if what, this one over here that's influenced by this other thing, right? And so, in the lamas, we end up with uh, uh, this fascinating set of scenarios, which sound like you know, just like. F- Unphilological scenarios and which themselves now suddenly justify what seemed like an entirely unwarranted story complication. My number one example of what seems like a completely unwarranted complication in the story is the Green Elves. Now, I don't know about you, but the more carefully I study these texts here, the Hlamas and uh, the Annals and stuff, the more I've come to hate the Green Elms. <laughs> so I'm like, wait, who are they again? And each, you, know, you know how many times he's changed his mind about the, wait, they're the Danites and the the Dan, and they, they went, no, they're, 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 they're no, no, wait, they're Teleri, they're, they're, they're Teleri, they're, what, and again, when you just read it, um, uh, when you just read it in, uh, in the Silmarillion, It's it's one of those things which seems like, again, if I were a modern editor, I'd be circling that bit. Like, okay, man, like... So we have this set of green elves, you know, the the, the green elves are this set of Teleri who, who separated from them originally with, with Lenway, but then later on some of them came over anyhow. Why do we need them? Why couldn't they just come over in the first place, right? Like what's what's the point of the Green Elves? And I'm not saying they don't oper they don't occupy a unique place in the story. Of course, they do occupy a unique place in the story. But when you read the Hamas. The uniqueness of their position and the utility of their of their existence is much, much more clear, right? Okay. About the year of the Valar 2700 and nearly 300 years of the Valar ere the return of the gnomes, while the world was still dark, the green elves that were called in their own tongue Danas, written over heavily and struck out Danyar, Quenya Nanyar, thank you very much, the followers of Dan... Came also into eastern Beleriand. Okay, fine. And dwelt in that region which is called Osirian, the land of the seven rivers, beneath the western slopes of Arid Linden. Okay. This folk was in the beginning of the Noldorin race, but is not counted among the Eldar, nor yet among the Lembi. For they followed Orome at first, yet forsook the host of Finway, ere the great march had gone very far, and turned southwards. But finding the lands dark and barren, for in the eldest days the south was never visited by any of the Valar, and its sky was scanty in stars, this folk turned again north their first leader was dan whose son was denethor and denethor led many of them at last over the blue mountains in the days of Thingol. for though they had turned back the green elves had yet heard the call to the west and were still drawn thither at times in unquiet and restlessness and for this reason they are not among the lembi nor was their tongue like the tongues of the lembi but was of its own kind different from the tongues of valinor and of doriath and of the lembi amended to different from the tongues of valinor and of the lembi but most like that of doriev though not the same and again it, this is like one of the uh, um like the, the that last sentence including the square brackets is one of the things which like kind of makes let me just say i can understand anybody who kind of uh, um who kind of felt like beating their head against a door jam at that point right um but again, back up, don't think about it from a I must memorize all of the plot details and keep the family tree clear in my head point of view, right? In other words, don't try to think of it as first and foremost a story that you have to understand a story. Think of it instead as a linguistic situation, right? And that's where this clarification at the end makes it so much clearer, right? What do we have here? What well, this, he's... Cre- the, the green elves are totally necessary, right? Because they're a different linguistic experiment from anybody else. They're Noldor, right? So, okay, so their language comes from the language of the Noldor, but they're displaced. From the Noldor, and notice they're displaced by a, a significant amount of time and space, not only because they were hanging out in Beleriand, but because they went into the south, which means they're separated geographically from the rest of the Noldor. So we've got these two branches of Noldor in speech, but it's also going to be moving in a different direction than the speech of the elves of Beleriand moved from there. So the shift between the language of the Noldor and the language of the Green Elves is not even going to be parallel to the shift between, say, the elves of the, of the, of the Falas and the other, the other Teleri, right? Because the, the green elves went in a totally different direction and had totally different experiences and were separated by totally different geography uh, from, from the Noldor. So, okay, so we've got that situation already. So we, we, we didn't have this sort of breach within the Noldor, right? We have lots of breaches within the We have lots of different subcategories of the Teleri. But now we bring them back up. Right. Um, and so their language is unique, right? It's 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 not like the tongues of the Lembi, not like the tongues of the which would later be called the Avari, pretty much. Um it's a language that is of its own kind. That's the key right there. That's the key. That's the justification. That that this phrase, this is this is the this is the excuse for the green elves, right? This is the response to the modern editor who would want to cut them, right? Um, the language of the Green Elves was of its own kind. Yes, of course, because their situation is philologically unique, right? It's totally new. So they they come from Noldorin, and yet they return to Beleriand, and so they're going to be influenced, heavily influenced, by the Sindar of Doriath, right? So the deviated Telerian language of the... Of the uh, of the Sindar is going to have a heavy influence on them, especially since they're not only kind of under the kingship of Thingol, but then we're going to get the connections with Beren and Luthien later on, right? As they're going to be called the people of Luthien. So okay, um, it, so you so you see how the 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 you know we already have Beleriand as this like um, a, a sort of laboratory this like linguistic laboratory of different of the development of different dialects we are already looking at that a little bit like with the elves of the falas versus the sindar right versus the the other teleri who didn't stay right oh but it's better right on top of that we add this deviated subgroup of noldor Right. Whose language goes in a totally different direction from everybody else's. And then, but then, but doesn't stay there. Right. Wait, it's even better. Then they come back and now they enter and then they become influenced by these other languages. And what would their language be then? If you love language invention and you love philology, what a fun party game this is. Right. I mean, this is, this is like, this is like if Tolkien knew anybody else exactly like himself, this is totally what they would have done at parties, right? Um, let's invent this sort of scenario and say, or, or, but again, it probably doesn't go that way. It goes the other way around, right? He's playing with Noldorin and sort of shifting it around in these ways. And he's saying, wait, but wait a second. Why would this sub thread of Noldorin be and influenced by the two, you know, if, and, and brought into relationship with this other branch of this other language? Why would that happen? Well, I've got to make up a story for that. So we make up the story of the Green Elves and the starlessness and, and all of this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, Nick says they're, the Green Elves are a kind of control group. Yeah, they are kind of like that. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, um uh, Nancy is saying it would be—it's—it's it's weird that they're most like the language of Doriath, though, since they're Noldor. Well, except it's very heavily influenced by Telerian, right? So it—it it comes almost to conform to the Telerian, but it's not the same, right? Uh, most like that of Doriath, but not the same. It's not the language of Doriath because you can tell that it came from a Noldoran root, right? but if you're th- coming from the point of view of the tree of tales again all of this makes sense all like why we need all of these different th- these different groups all of these different peoples um makes perfect sense cuz each one of them represents a unique linguistic and philological situation each one um illustrates a different and fascinating um linguistic evol- you know sort of state or um or stage of linguistic evolution, right? And how much fun is that? Um, uh, Yeah, so, anyway. uh, And again, so again, looking at this stuff in the Lamas more carefully, Now, again, I buy it. I totally buy it. That he had, you know, he was like playing with Noldorin, and it went in the, and took it in this direction. And is like, Hey, what happens when you combine Noldorin and Telerian? Right. Ooh, look at this other thing that we get, right? Wow. But, but who would, who would speak that language? Well, all right. I got to come up with a reason why we've got these people speaking this language, right? This really fun Noldorin, but like Doriath Telerian hybrid thing that I've made. Right. Um, so he comes up with the green elves. And, and, and so in a sense, I'm willing to believe that basically the story of the Green Elves was forced. A, a modern editor might read this and be like, this seems a little bit contrived, right? Like, why would we, why do we need this totally separate people group coming in, you know, with this complex relationship to everything else? Um, Why can't we just make this a little more streamlined, right? Well, no, because it's needed to represent the linguistic uh, complexity that Tolkien had already been giving it. But wait, there's more! Right? It's not just that we have the stories of the elves uh which seem to come from these uh uh you know this these these complex imaginings of the the interrelationships between different different languages. Um but again let's let's cause that's not enough. This still is only one subcategory of philology, right? In doing this, we're still just thinking about how these languages split and influence each other over time. But wait a second. What about... what about this? Of other tongues than the Aromian speeches, which have yet some relationship therewith, little will will here be said. Orquin, or Orquian, the language of the Orcs, the soldiers and creatures of Morgoth, was partly itself of Valian origin for it was derived from the vala morgoth but the speech which he taught he perverted willfully to evil as he did all things and the languages of the orcs was and the language of the orcs was hideous and foul and utterly unlike the languages of the kendi but morgoth himself spoke all tongues with power and beauty when so he wished um yeah Yeah. (laughs) Karita says, Ever get the feeling you're hanging out with someone who has a brain that works way differently from your own? Yes, Karita, and believe me, I have that experience with Tolkien all the time. Um, I I love Tolkien, and I have always loved Tolkien. I have never loved Tolkien because I felt he was a kindred spirit. Um, I've never... There are some writers whom I read and I have the experience of saying like, I, this person, I feel like this person thinks exactly like me. Um, I, I just, I take to this, you know, uh, it just, it feels completely organic. Like this person gets me right. And I, I, for me, that author is CS Lewis. I like, I CS Lewis's prose um, clicks with my mind just seamlessly. And, incredibly easily. Tolkien's never has. That was never my experience with Tolkien. With Tolkien, I've always felt that I was in the, in the, um, in the presence of something other, very other than me, uh, and very foreign to me. Um, but, um, of course, it's one of the reasons I've always loved it. Um, uh, different, but awesome. Um, And uh, yes, Arthur, this predates the concept of the Black Speech, which was explicitly invented by Sauron. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, uh, Okay. So, anyway. So, you see what we get here, right? A language which is on the same tree as the Elvish languages, but different from the root. Way back in the root. Um, not derived from any of the elvish languages, but derived directly from Valian, right? Um, so, just as the elves, uh, the 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 you know the 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 aboriginal Elfish language was derived from from Valian, the language of the Valar, so Orcish also was. So ultimately, they come from the same root. But let's imagine. So 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 again, here we we see the imagination you know the invention of a philologist right let's imagine a root which is totally separate right which again not not a root rather it's totally separate but a, a a stem that is whose development is completely unique and uninfluenced by the elvish languages and and takes a different course well we'd need a we we we'd, we'd need a, a reason for that right we'd need a um we'd need an excuse for that we need a story to explain how this other language cuz that's a that that's a thing right to have this this language that separated way out at the very beginning right well why would it right and why would it be so different um even though it had a similar root well it's orc language deliberately perverted into evil by morgoth so we have so notice like the amount of fun that this opens up right uh for our uh you know for 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 the amount of fun that a self indulgent philologist can have here right a what is an evil language like right? How do you make a language evil? Well, we can play with that right but but but, but wait, you can't just make up a random evil language right It still has to be linked in its philological origin to the same language as the elves, but not influenced by them right, and not derived from those languages but from their from their from their root language right. Awesome. Awesome. Right? Great fun. Notice, by the way, and we'll come back to this, I hope, um, either later tonight or next time. Um, The question of where do orcs come from? It couldn't be clearer. The idea of orcs being derived from elves is alien to the original conception of the Silmarillion. We've seen this in the stories, but this proves it, right? You can tell. Orcs obviously don't come from... Or orcs are obviously not Elves. Because if they were, their language would be derived from the Elvish languages, right? It would be the Elvish languages corrupted and perverted. Not the Valian language perverted directly, right? Okay. But wait! There's more! Because, again, we don't want to just imagine this. We also, right, would need to imagine a totally independent language. A language which doesn't even come from the same stem at all, right? Ta in- in- uh, Introducing the dwarves, right? Of the language of the dwarves, little is known to us, save that its origin is as dark as is the origin of the dwarvish race itself, and their tongues are not akin to other tongues, but wholly alien, and they are harsh and intricate and few have essayed to learn them. And then he, he gives the story which we looked at before, that the, this first version of the Aule making the dwarves' story. "'But the dwarves have no spirit in dwelling, as have elves and men, the children of Iluvatar, and this the Valar cannot give.'" We talked about that, too, the dwarves with no souls. "'Therefore the dwarves have skill and craft, but no art, and they make no poetry.'" Aule devised a speech for them afresh. For his delight is an invention, and it has therefore no kinship with others. And they have made this harsh in use. Okay, all right. So, um, yeah. Um, uh, Arthur points out that uh, a chat room observation here uh, that Tolkien spends a lot of time and energy on orc language, but doesn't think or talk about or reproductive biology or theology or anything like that. We get, we get nothing else. I was, I was talking about this question, um, I was talking about this question earlier today uh, during my Griffith stream in response to an email that I got about, you know, what would seem to be like world building gaps in Tolkien's world. Right. Like these big questions that, you know, a good, thorough world builder should answer, but which Tolkien doesn't seem to think about things like economy and agriculture and reproduction and things like that. And he just doesn't talk about them that much. Um, uh, Of course, one of this is that they're, they're obviously interested in the wrong questions, right? Um, he's thought very thoroughly through the linguistic situation, and that's obviously what matters, right? But that's what he was interested. He's not interested in, in economics, right? Um, he's not very interested in agriculture, and he doesn't spend much time on those things. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. So the dwarves. What do we see about what do we what does this show us about dwarves? How... Well, the, they have, so, again, we can see the game that a philologist is playing, right? Okay, ooh, let me think about a language. First, let's devise this, this again, another unique philological scenario, right? Okay, a language which is totally unconnected to all the rest of the languages. But wait, how would that happen, right? How would you have this one people group who just had this randomly different... Ah, well, okay, i got to have a story. So the whole story of Owlay devising the dwarves makes sense, right? But 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 wait a second. What about that soullessness thing, right? Cause I mean that seems a little we talked about that last not last time, but we talked about that when we were talking about the uh not the I Linda Way, when we were talking about the Annals, right? And how in particular I was talking about how difficult it is to imagine that a Tolkien who has already written the Hobbit, right? Who has already written a who is reading proofs and reading, correcting proofs, publisher's proofs of The Hobbit um, is cheerfully writing stories about how dwarves have no souls, right? It just, it seems impossible to, and I, and at the time I was emphasizing how this seems to me to really confirm the kind of firewall, imaginative firewall that's still up in Tolkien's mind between The Hobbit and the Silmarillion stuff. Um, but I think this also helps us to understand that a little bit more. Right? Why did he move in that direction here in the late 30s, after he'd written The Hobbit, to this concept of the soullessness of the dwarves? Well, of course, because it's a necessary part of the story in order to explain their life. Because this is perfect, right? The story of Aule making the dwarves out of impatience and animating them, but them not being real children of Iluvatar... It's the this is this is it's, it's 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 the it's the magic bullet, right? It explains everything. It explains how they have a language that's linguistically, you know, philologically disconnected to all other languages, right? Because Aule made up a, a language from scratch because he's outlay, right? So he likes that. Um, so he didn't just say, "Hey, let me teach you Valian, and then you can, you know, you can change it over time or whatever." He's like, "No, no, no, I'm going to make up a language for you because I love making things up." So, um, so he makes up a language for them. That's totally unrelated to every other language. But they make no poetry, the dwarves. Right? Which means they don't make their language beautiful. Because they have no souls. Right? Um, So, the dwarf language that he makes, it's harsh and unlovely. Right? It has no kinship with others because Aole made it up. It is harsh in use because the dwarves were using it and they don't have souls and they make no poetry. Right. Um, therefore, it was never a language of... There's a kind of vitality that the Dwarvish language doesn't have, and that's why it turned out the way that it did. Right. But again, from the Hlamis, it seems pretty clear that the explanation goes the other direction. Right. We have Dwarvish. Why does it sound like this? Why is it so harsh? Why would it be so harsh? It would be so harsh because the people who speak it... it 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 is really harsh and it's unrelated the, for the same reason because it was invented for them they don't have souls so so in fact i it seems to me that it's the um it's the um the d- the development of like the linguistic situation of the dwarves language in the llamas that is influencing what we were reading in the annals. Why now all of a sudden dwarves don't have souls? That was never a thing before. Dwarves were evil before. I mean, they were children of Morgoth, originally in the Book of Lost Tales. They were just monsters, you know, like dragons and dwarves and giants and other things. Um, but, um, you know, in Balrogs. So they're not evil anymore, but now they're soulless, where they didn't used to be soulless? Well, again, because it explains the linguistic situation. So, okay. Cool. Fine. Um... Now, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Nancy, he does change his mind about this. Um, Nancy's wondering, does he go back and make changes to the language to reflect this? I would have to imagine he did. Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Brian Dimick is asking very sensibly. He said that very, you know... Pangalod of Gondolin here has said that uh, very few outsiders have ever learned it, so how would the elves know if the dwarves make no poetry? A question to be asked, Brian. Don't know, right? And we have to just sort of accept Pangalod's authority on that. Um, And we're given no instances, right? Um, uh, uh, I mean, we're we're, we're given no examples of dwarvish language here. Um, So, you know, we don't really know. There's there's a lot that we can't really sort of judge for ourselves here, but uh, um, yeah, Kevin was pointing out here that it still is a biased Delvish text, which is kind of throwing the dwarves under the bus. Um, yes. But, but again, in saying those things, I think you guys are thinking backwards. I mean, it's not that it's not a valid way to think about it. But that's not how, how this game works, right? Um, you're thinking of story first and language second. The Lamas is thinking about language first and story second, right? We want a language which is different from everything else and which is soulless and without poetry. Because wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, that'd be cool, right? Uh, you know, this this language which is... Because notice we, he, he's not... He, he gives no, like, branches of different Dwarvish dialects, right? Um, the, Presumably there are, right? Or down the road he would say that there were but that's, we're not given any sense of that here. Um, the dwarves are uniform because they're soulless, right? So we've got this uniform, but unique and different, but very harsh language. It would be explained this way. So if you guys want to explain away that explanation by bias from the elves' point of view, you're going back a step in the story, not in the languages. Right, and if you're doing that, so basically, if by saying, "Well, this is a biased elfish account," what you're implying is that, well, maybe the dwarves' language wasn't all that harsh, and maybe it was more poetic, and maybe, well, okay, but in doing that, you're changing the philological situation, and it might be a little bit less fun, maybe, than the philological situation that he was laying out. Right now, again, this is going to change. By the time we get to the end of the Lord of the Rings, the concept of the dwarves is obviously going to be different, and the concept of the dwarves' language is going to be different. So, soulless dwarves are not going to survive very long in Tolkien's uh, in Tolkien's world, right? In Tolkien's in Tolkien's subcreation here, um, but uh, um, but anyway, uh, it's yeah. I no, Nancy, I don't. I don't mean to. Perhaps I'm oversimplifying. I don't mean to suggest that. Um, harsh-sounding language equals no poetry. Like, that the two things are the, are two different ways of expressing the same fact. Um, I don't mean that. Um, but rather, both things, the harshness of the language and the lack of poetry in the language, are both explained um, by the same... Those are both facts about the language. We're being asked to accept them as facts about the language, and they make for an interesting philological situation because again, notice what we have of uh, somebody I forget who is making the joke about the green elves language being a control group. The dwarves language is the real control group, right? um Nick it, was that you, I think anyway um uh the, this is the real control group. let's not only. Imagine a language which is philologically unique and not related by origin or influence from any of the other languages, but let's also imagine a language which is um, which is not poetic remember in in doing that he's making it. Like the opposite of the elvish languages in that, you know remember the like artistic fecundity of the elvish languages they're always so creative and playing with the words and inventing new things and expressing th- that like the, even when they're not speaking poetry their language their relationship with language is fundamentally poetic right so let's imagine a language that isn't right that's part of the fun that's part of the philological fun is imagining cuz he's already done the poetic language thing well so this is going to be an unpoetic language okay and um and 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 it's going to be a har- and and when he invents this language it's a harsh language right so why would it be harsh how could it be non poetic how could ah soullessness It's got to be soullessness right cuz if you've got a soul your language has got to be poetic right i mean that's a given so in order to have a non-poetic language, it's gotta be it's gotta be uh um it it's it's gotta be spoken by a soulless people, right? Anyway, so do you see what I mean by saying that you guys who are talking about elvish bias and wanting to explain things from Pengalod's history and stuff like that, um again it's not that that's not it's not that's not that that's not a valid thing, but you're coming at it from the other end. You're not thinking about the language first and the story second. You're thinking about the story first and the language merely as a as an embellishment of the story. This this it's the Hlamas which finally convinced me, not only of the fact that he really meant it when he said that it was primarily linguistic and inspiration, but. Um, furthermore, helped me imaginatively to to to, to comprehend, just to, to be able to envision what that would be like, right? What it would be like to start with language and have stories, have the stories grow from that rather than have the languages grow from the stories. Um, so yeah, um, uh, Anyway, yes, and several. Several of you are, make, are making reference to Lord of the Rings dwarves and the songs and the battle cries that they sing. Absolutely, it's change, It's going to change. He's going to abandon this concept, um, but he hasn't yet. Forget Gimli. Gimli hasn't happened yet. Forget Gimli sing, reciting poetry. Forget Gimli's war cries. Forget the you know Durin's folk appendix in appendix A. Forget it. Doesn't exist yet. Right. That's not it's going to come on the radar screen pretty quickly, but it's not there yet. This is where he is right now. Um, And what we can see him doing here is imagining this stuff. Right. Um, uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, James Stevens asks, were the stories changing over time um, because he was making changes to the tree? (sighs) I have to think they were. I absolutely have to think they were. For instance, James, why do the green elves cease to be Noldor in origin and become Teleri? Right. Did he do that just to kind of streamline the story? I doubt it. Right. I have to imagine that the story changing from the green elves were originally Noldor who came who separated off and came back to they are a subset of the Nandor who crossed over the Blue Mountains, who left where the rest of the Nandor lived between the Misty Mountains and the... Uh, or who, d- who didn't cross the Misty Mountains. Um, and th- these are the ones who eventually made it to Beleriand. James Stevens, like, I would bet that that happened because he made the alteration in the Tree of Tongues. And then Reworked the story in order to reflect the new version of the Tree of Tongues that he was working with. So I I I feel confident that some of the of the evolutions in the story happen because he'd made changes to his concepts of the interrelationships of the languages. Um, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you guys are. You guys are awesome. There's a, I, I'm not able to do justice to, like, the furious dwarf ap- uh, uh, apologetics that, that are going on in the questions. And I love it. You guys are awesome, and I share your love for the dwarves and your outrage in the idea of soulless dwarves. And I absolutely agree with you that Thorin and company, as they're depicted in The Hobbit, are way more fun than soulless dwarves. Uh, and that um, uh, that the dwarves, as they will become in the Fellowship of the Ring, win in because don't forget in the Lord of the Rings, what we're getting in the Lord of the Rings, and and I. I, I think we're going to see this a lot more clearly uh, if and when we go on to read the history of the Lord of the Rings in the next three volumes of the History of Middle-Earth series. It can't be understated the significance, I think, of the Lord of the Rings in Tolkien's works. It's not just because it's his longest, greatest published work. Um, it 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 is a sea change in Tolkien's world. It is the moment when the world of The Hobbit that he wrote and the world of the Silmarillion that he's been writing uh, meet and marry and have a child, (laughs) right? When they really become integrated into a full story, and the outcome of the Silmarillion stuff, this kind of awkward stuff that we're reading. I mean, awkward in the sense of, again, can you imagine a public published book, right? With the annals, the Hlamas, the, the Ina Lindley and the Quintus Silmarillion, as we're seeing it in the Lost road, you know, imagine that on the bookshelves, um, that thing married to the Hobbit and the, the product is this work of exceptional, remarkable genius, the greatest work of literature of the 20th century. Um, but this is why it's so cool, studying the Silmarillion stuff here. We know the Hobbit. This is the other half of it, and really understanding where this came from and how this came to be. So, um... Um... So, anyway. So, that's where we're going. But you have to, um... you, you <laughs> Arthur says, is this a case where the dwarf story marries up? Uh, yeah. In a sense. Um... Forget the Hobbit, forget the Lord of the Rings for a second, Just forget it. it. Again, I come back to the fact that the guy who wrote The Hobbit, the guy who wrote the deathbed scene of Thorin Oakenshield, could then, within years, again, he's still like, he's possibly turning, putting down his pen. Right From writing the paragraph here about soulless dwarves in the Hlamas, and 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 okay, he's probably keeping his pen in his hand, but he's he's putting that aside, and then he's picking up the proofs, right the publisher's proofs of the hobbit and uh, and going through and rereading and doing final edits of Thorin's deathbed scene right and're we're ta- we're, so we're not talking so you know no separation here, right this guy is it how could? Tolkien, how could any author who had just written The Hobbit even conceive, even think of the idea of soulless Dwarfs, right? How do you go there? What could possibly make him to think, even briefly, that that was a good idea, story-wise, right? The Tree of Tongues is what makes him think that. Because he is first a philologist and second a storyteller. Not first a storyteller. Yes, those of us who love the story and who love the characters are like, oh, story, characters, we can't possibly leave that behind, right? And so we fight tooth and nail, as you guys have been fighting tooth and nail, uh, against Leaving the dwarves behind and and entertaining this idea of soulless dwarves who have no poetry, right? Um, that leap that you are so reluctant to make. Why could he make it, right? How is it that he could? Do? Because he's thinking about languages. And if if your interest in the, is if your interest is first and foremost the philology, then you'll embrace it, at least embrace the possibility because it's cool philologically, right? I mean. Wow, how much fun to try to invent a language with no poetry, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, a really good play. Like, I can do this with one hand tied behind my back, right? I can imagine this wholly different thing. I mean, it's pretty cool. Um, Or rather, really interesting, right? Um, And fun from that enormously... uh, Very, very deeply geeky, philological (laughs) point of view. Okay, so, um, but again, this is why I point to this as, um, this is why I point to this as an illustration of what Tolkien means and how much he means it when he says that the history and legends of the Elder Days were primarily linguistic in inspiration, right um, and uh, um, yeah, yeah, um uh, uh, Cecilia says, maybe it's the idea that we can't picture Tolkien as a soulless uh, uh, spiritless uh you know uh writer, you know it does seem um, C- uh, cecilia very um cold, right, to sort of go in that direction to think like. Boy, you know, this idea of soulless dwarves is such an upgrade from the deathbed scene of Thor and and Oakenshield, right? Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, So, um, yeah, Marie says uh, there's Esperanto, the... Uh, Constructed language. Does anyone write poetry in Esperanto? Uh, They must, but I imagine he wanted Dwarvish to be a conlang, exactly, constructed language, um, rather than a natural language, exactly. Marie, and that's a he loved Esperanto. He loved the concept of Esperanto, right? Um, He loved this, so he wanted to play. That's what he was doing, right? Um, It's like the 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 thought experiment. Of making an inorganic language compared to an organic language, right? What would that be like? That's fun. If you're a philologist, that's fun, um, and and you might be willing. You might find that sufficiently fun uh, to be willing to subordinate as he was. I mean, again, we have this text right in front of us, which shows he was willing to kiss goodbye <laughs> to Thorin and company. You know, he's willing to, uh, to say, yep, uh, dwarves have no souls because that would explain how you could get a constructed, a soulless, poetryless constructed language. Right. Um, uh. Yeah. Now, Marie, of course, Marie says, but all of his invented languages are technically conlangs. Exactly! But that's the other part of the experiment, right? How to make a constructed language which doesn't work like a constructed language, which has some of the dynamism of a real organic language, right? That's 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 the biggest part of the fun, which is why the Elvish family tree is so big and complicated, and the Dwarvish family tree is sterile and singular, right? Um. Anyway, but it's all it's the fun, right? but that is the primary fun that's the root of all fun of tolkien's writing um and in this sense, in a sense, I think the resistance that you guys have been showing me and and I'm sorry i'm not doing uh, uh I'm not hitting all of your your remarks and I'm not doing justice to all of the thing all of the the impassioned appeals I am receiving in defense of the souls of dwarves um uh it's it's All of these things are uh, the root of the fun is the linguistic situations. That's what Tolkien liked, right? And what you guys are doing is just showing that you're not thinking like Tolkien, that you don't derive that same fun, which is fine. It's cool. I don't either. Um, I don't either. But um, yeah, Marie Prosser says, "Can you imagine what would have happened if Tolkien had met a kindred spirit to play this game with? Uh, yeah, or received more encouragement, right? Um, to 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 retain that idea that there might be some hope that that people would really would really like this." Um, but anyway, so this is what I mean when I said at the beginning that reading the Hlam- studying the Kalamis is what really finally convinced me that Tolkien really meant what he said, um, and I hope this begins to kind of help you to see. What I, re- <clears throat> what I really believe to be the case, that ultimately the Tree of Tongues was kind of what it was all about. Um, I have always loved Tolkien story so much, as you guys also are obviously loving Tolkien story so much, that I can't let that go is the primary thing, right? Um, and I always, and you will probably have caught me uh, if you're listening carefully to how I talk about things, even tonight in trying to explain this, I have doubtless myself reversed things around frequently um, to make it sound as if the story comes first and the languages are derivative of the stories. Um, but there are things, and the dwarfish language is one of the primary examples um, that um, uh, that really, to me, show that um, that he is... He really was thinking first of Nancy, in your words, um, his weird linguistic experiments was the number one thing. And the story was just the the sort of um, the thing that his own imagination demanded in order to give. But remember the bones and stones and flesh, right? Um, uh, it's the bones. The language is the bones, um, but it needs more than bones. Right. It's not, he's not content with just bones. Um, you need, uh, um, yeah, Tomas says, so let's not forget, uh, that the Hobbit came out the same time as Snow White. Very hard to find a market for soulless dwarves. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the relationship, of course, between the Hobbit and Snow White is an interesting thing all on its own. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It would have been even harder. It, it the, the, the hope would certainly have been diminishing, not increasing, that he'd find somebody else to, uh, uh, to share this. Um, uh, Cecilia asks, do I think that Tolkien would really be frustrated with us because we don't see the story from the language, uh, uh, point of view first, imagining him shaking his head at us, maybe saying, you just don't get it. Um, or would he just, uh, uh, just sigh and be tolerant of us? See, Cecilia, I don't think it's like, I mean, cause the thing is, I don't think he was pure philologist all the time. It's not like he didn't like the stories, right? It's not like the stories, um, you know, uh, like the the language is the dessert, and the stories are eating as vegetables right it wasn't i i I don't believe that um Tolkien was himself too much of a poet um the 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 language is the primary thing. I'm very willing to believe that the language is in the driver's seat. But it's not the whole thing. Um, it's not at all the whole package. Again, just like Alboin wanted the flesh as well as the bones, um, so Tolkien wants the flesh as well as the bones. So it's certainly not... You know, I don't think he would be simply saying, oh, you guys just totally don't get it at all. Um, um, he would be fine with us loving the stories. He loved the stories, and he loved myth and story. Um... It's just that he saw it differently. He thought about it differently. Um, what we're talking about is—I mean, ultimately, when we get to the Silmar, we get the Silmarillion, and even even to the Lord of the Rings, what we're looking at is a a thing with flesh and bones, right? It's the fact that the that the the the, the Lord of the Rings has flesh and bones is is a big part of the reason I think why um, it is what it is. It doesn't need to have both flesh and bones, right? Um, I don't think at all that Tolkien would be like, forget the flesh, just look at the skeleton, right? It's no, he put flesh on it for a reason. He was invested uh, uh, in it in the in the in the flesh for a reason. Um, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, James. Uh, comes in with a quote from Tolkien's letters. Thanks for this, James. Uh, So here's Tolkien in his letters. I don't much approve of the hobbit myself. Preferring my own mythology, which is just touched on, with its consistent nomenclature, Elrond, Gondolin, and Esgaroth have escaped out of it, an organized history to this rabble of Edaic named dwarves out of the Voluspa, newfangled hobbits and golems invented in an idle hour, and Anglo-Saxon runes. Yeah. Um... uh, Exactly. Exactly. Um, and James says that, it, that you can see the firewall pretty clearly uh, uh, between the Hobbit and the Silmarillion material uh, in that letter. Absolutely. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, when he says he didn't like the Hobbit, I don't believe it. Um, And when he criticizes The Hobbit later on and wishes he'd written it differently, I disagree with him. I just think he's flat wrong about that. Um, And I think his attempt to revise The Hobbit in 1960 proves that he was wrong, and I am right, that The Hobbit was good. (laughs) And that that he was wrong in saying that The Hobbit was bad, and that he wished he'd done it differently. And I think it would have been terrible if he'd done it differently. Um, But uh, anyway, I I think The Hobbit is just right the way it is. Um, But anyway... um, but but yeah. N- n- nevertheless, uh, James, you're absolutely right to quote that. Right? We see this is what he likes better. The Hobbit isn't really him, right? The Hobbit isn't really him. The Silmarillion is more really him, but the Silmarillion isn't quite enough either. Again, that's why in the Lord of the Rings we get the marriage of those two things. Right? Let's take the soul that's in the Hobbit. Right? Um, the, the, the 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 real meat. Of the Hobbit, the wonderful story, and uh, and characters and things of the Hobbit, and let's let's take that flesh and let's put that on the bones that he has developed in the Silmarillion. The result is the Lord of the Rings. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, one more, one more point before we leave the Hobbits behind. Um The philological myth, right? Love this. Yet in Tala is near the very end, yet in Arisaia, by the power of the Valar and their mercy, the old is preserved from fading. And there yet is Noldorin spoken, and the language of Doriath and of Assyrian is held in mind, and in Valinor there flower yet the fair tongues of the Lindar and the Teleri, but the Noldor that returned and went not to war and suffering in the world are no longer separate, and speak as do the Lindar, and in Kor and in Tol Arasea may still be heard and read the accounts and histories of things that befell in the days of the trees and of the Silmarils, ere these were lost." Um, note a couple things here. First, notice how the trees and the Silmarils get dropped in there at the end, and the mythical, the mythic power that those references have at the end of that paragraph, right? Um, histories of things that befell in the days of the trees and of the Silmarils, ere these were lost, right? Um, so we have these big mythic story concepts right but they are context of this like this linguistic myth this philological myth right the myth of tol Arisaia, the island where all of the languages still live remember Alboin, right remember Alboin's desire to go back and to hear these languages spoken by there exists a language. If you can find the lost road, if you can find the straight road, like Alfwina did, and get to Tol Arasea, you can actually hear Noldorin spoken, and you can hear the language of Doriath, and you can hear the language of Osirian, and you can hear the language of the Lindar and the Teleri, right? Um, you can get all this, right? Um, it still is preserved. It's all there in Tol Arisaia. There's a place that you can go to where all of the different branches of the Tree of Tongues still have their living speakers that you could hear and talk to. What a concept, right? but what a concept that's designed to please a very few a very small percentage of dreamers right very few people have this particular dream for very few people would this be what paradise looks like right um but it's clear in the world of of the llamas this is what paradise looks like um the place where all of the languages are preserved forever, and you can speak with living speakers of all of these different languages. Carry Gross says uh, uh, it's, his, uh, it's his library of Alexandria for his languages. Um, yes, yes, exactly. It's been lost from the world. Not burned, right, but lost, taken away from the world. Um, and it's what, you know, what, what uh, remains to us is the lost road, right, the straight path. Um, yeah, awesome stuff. Okay. Let's begin the Quinta Silmarillion, because I totally said we were going to do that, and we have lots of time left to do that. So let's, let's start thinking about the Quinta, and then we'll we'll dig into some more of its uh, issues and stuff uh, next time, as we continue reading. Okay, so um, first, let's just remember what this text is and where it came from exactly. Those of you who did the Shaping of Middle-Earth class will remember Uh, will remember this. Um, Remember the history of this. It started as a purely utilitarian summary. He was sending somebody a copy of the alliterative lay of the Children of Hurin, and he wanted to give them a background, right? He wanted to give them a little synopsis of the mythology so that it would understand the names that are referred to and the stories that are alluded to uh, during the course of the poem of the Children of Hurin. So it was literally a utilitarian summary um, a, a just a, a, a precy written for somebody else to contextualize a different work. Um, what we were looking at, especially in the Shaping of Middle-Earth, when we were uh, in the Shaping of Middle-Earth class, looking at—so that was the sketch of the mythology, what's called the sketch of the mythology, that thing that Christopher Tolkien keeps, keeps referring to as capital S um, in, uh, uh, in his notes and commentaries. That's the sketch, the utilitarian thing. And But, of course, it's utilitarian, but he gets carried away in places, as we looked at at the time. He can't help himself, because he's too much of a poet and storyteller. Um, and then we see him taking that and being like, hey, this is kind of cool. I'm going to make this a thing. I'm, I'm, I'm going to make this into an actual and artistic medium, instead of a purely utilitarian thing. And that's the Quinta. That's what becomes the thing which uh, Christopher Tolkien calls Capital Q, um, again, which is in The Shaping of Middle-earth. Um, the Quenta or the Quenta Noldorinwa. Um, so what we're getting here is the later, the revised version. Remember, there's not a whole lot of time gap between the writing of those things and and the writing of this stuff. Uh, uh, Christopher Tolkien tells us. Um, so this is a revision of the earlier Quenta stuff. This is this is the, the the sort of the completion. Remember, we're preparing for publication. This is the final draft of the early Silmarillion. Right. This is. Um, uh, so fascinating, of course, that he chooses this, but let's look at how he contextualizes it. Um, I said we'd return to this, and by golly we are. Um, the title page of the Quintus Silmarillion manuscript here, one of them. The Quintus Silmarillion. Herein is Kentan Alderinwa or Penas in Goliath, or History of the Gnomes. This is a history, in brief, drawn from many older tales, for all the matters that it contains were of old, and are still among the Eldar of the West, recounted more fully in other histories and songs. But many of these were not recalled by Ariel, or men have again lost them since his day. This account was composed first by Pengalod of Gondolin, and Alfwina turned it into our speech as it was in his time, that is, Anglo-Saxon, adding nothing, he said, save explanations of some few names." So now we have the fictional history of the Quinta. Why is it that we've taken, like, what was a utilitarian plot summary and turned it into an, like, why is this now the Silmarillion, right? Well, be- it makes sense, right? Because how do the elves do things? Like Tolkien does, right? What did Tolkien do? He wanted to tell the big stories, right? The lay of the children who are in the lay of Lathian, um, the other poems that he started and didn't finish. So these other history, the, the full versions of this is all in these history and songs. That's where you can find it. You need to get the, you need to, you need to hear the Lay of Lathian. You need to hear the Lay of the Children of Húrin in order to really get the full stories. But because Alfina is transmitting this, right? He doesn't have the full text of these. He can't give a full Anglo Saxon translation of the iterative lay of Leia, the children of Huron or of the Lay of Lathian. So what he can give us is a is a summary, right? He's giving us an overview of the history. Um the <clears throat> the overview is composed the overview is composed by Pengalod for Alfwina's benefit, right? So that Alf can take it back. Um Okay, so now we have this sort of meta history of the Quenta itself, right? And it's called now the Quenta Silmarillion, um, in which is the history of the gnomes. Gnomes still means Noldor. That's still the word that he's using um, as basically like the English translation. Notice this thing. So we've got the Kenton Noldorinwa or Penis in Goliath. So we have the the two Elvish language versions. And then we have the English translation of both of those things, History of the Gnomes. Right? So he's using gnome as the English word, the English translation for Noldor. Okay? Right. All right. Um, So... All right. Very good. So so we see where he's sort of heading with this, right? We can see how this is, uh, the, how and the, why this, why the Quintus Silmarillion in this form is the central text of this complicated work, right? Remember, this is the Silmarillion. This is Tolkien's vision, the thing he's trying to get published, right? So the rest of the stuff is kind of supporting documentation, or not documentation exactly, but extra information. The Quenta is the story. The Annals gives background stuff and helps contextualize things. The Aino Indole expands on the story of creation and provides a frame, a sort of an ideological, you know, a philosophical, theological frame for the whole story. The Lamas gives us the history of tongues, because everybody wants to know. You know, they're all clamoring to understand the philological background of these stories but the Quintus silmarillion is really the heart of the story um remember as we go through uh, and christopher tolkien is em- emphasizes this very strongly in his commentaries this that we're reading not you know in the stuff that we've been doing but here in a sense kind of especially in the Quintus silmarillion this is the final version of the silmarillion in a couple senses right uh, it, one in the sense that so I've been emphasizing that it's the version that he's making up for publication. This in Tolkien's mind, this is the end point of the last 20 years of his life. He's been working out and revising this story ever since he was in the war, right? And it's now the 30s and all of this stuff is coming to fruition, right? This is the final version of all that stuff that he's, now, that he's bringing it all together. But this is also the final version of the Silmarillion in a a second sense, which is that big chunks of what we get in the Quenta and in the Quenta Silmarillion are the final state of this stuff. You'll recognize a lot. If you know the published Silmarillion really well, as we read the Quenta Silmarillion, you'll recognize a bunch of stuff, right? when you recognize long patches of text which are identical to the text of the published Silmarillion or nearly identical to that text, um, it's because some of, uh, a bunch of that stuff is, um, you know, he's never going to do a full version. So even when he does come back to it after The Lord of the Rings and decides to kind of open up the Silmarillion and redo and revise a whole bunch of things, some of this stuff he's never going to write out. Again, he's never going to get to it. We dealt with this in the last class when we were... Remember when we were reading the Fall of Gondolin story in the Quenta? Not the Quenta Silmarillion here, but in the Quenta back in The Shaping of Middle-Earth. Um, and we were talking about how big sections of the description of, um, of the Fall of Gondolin sounds exactly like what's in the published Silmarillion account of the Fall of Gondolin. And our first reaction might be to say, Wow, Tolkien didn't change his mind about that stuff at all! right he just he just he, you know he you know there it is it came out in the early 30s and by golly you know when he died and 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 when the published Silmarillion is published posthumously it's still exactly like he said it back in the 30s no that's not the situation the situation is he was revising the lot he just didn't get to that bit right he uh, you know as christopher explains in his commentaries uh, which is why you should read the commentaries um christopher explains in his commentaries The published Silmarillion sounds like the Quenta in that section because the Quenta is that time in the early 30s is the last time he ever got to the actual fall of Gondolin. He never wrote another full prose account. He never gets to it because he keeps going back and starting over again at the beginning. He never gets to the actual description of the battle and the destruction of Gondolin in any other account. So, when Christopher Tolkien is trying to put together the Silmarillion, he knows Tolkien was planning to change it in certain ways, but he doesn't have any of Tolkien's words telling that story the way that he was later envisioning it. So, he goes back to the only words that he... So, he puts in the published Silmarillion the only words that he has, which are the ones from La Quinta. So, in that sense also, um, his... uh, Um, his, this, that's another sense in which what we're getting here is like the final version of the Silmarillion. It's not that he's not going to change it. He's going to want, he's going to make lots and lots of changes. Um, but his preparation for publication here is about as thorough, is almost as thoroughgoing as he's ever going to be again, um, in his entire life. Uh, so he's going to come back to this, but, um, you know, this is uh, this is just about as close to publication as the Silmarillion's ever going to get in Tolkien's lifetime. Um, okay. Now, um, all right, one more, one more uh, uh, on the on the metatextual situation here. Um, so again, just more more context that he gives. is note. These histories were written by Pengalod the Wise of Gondolin, both in that city before its fall, and afterwards at Tathrabel in the Lonely Isle, Tolarasea, after the return unto the west. Remember, this is Alfwina speaking here, writing here, right? In their making, he used much the writings of Rumil the Elf Sage of Valinor, chiefly in the Annals of Valinor, and the Account of Tongues, the, the, the Lamas, right? And he used also the accounts that are preserved in the Golden Book. The word of Pengalod I learned—the work of Pengalod, rather—I learned much by heart and turned into my tongue, some during my sojourn in the West, but most after my return to Britain. Translators note. The histories are here given in English of this day, translated from the version of Ariel of Lathian, as the gnomes called him, who was Alfwina of angelkyn Such other matters as Alfwina took direct from the Golden Book, together with his account of his voyage and his sojourn in Toleracea, are given elsewhere. Okay, so we're not going to do the whole Lost Tales frame, right? We're going to separate that out as a different story. And it's found elsewhere, right? This is just the meat. So notice the situation that, that, that this new, sort of this final version of the frame that Tolkien is putting on his Silmarillion stories, right? Um, Alpha, in his own words say... These histories are written by Pangolin, and he tells the history of the stories that was the stories as they're transmitted to him, and then he gives his own transmission, right? I memorized a bunch of it, right? Um, and I wrote it down. Some I wrote down while I was there in Tolarsaia, but most of it I wrote down after I returned to Britain. And then as, as translator, posing as translator, Tolkien tells us this is a translated work. This work was originally written in Anglo-Saxon and I'm translating it for you into modern English, right? Um, Which means, final note to blow your mind one last time here tonight. It's not just that these stories emerge, that we are being asked to imagine, that these stories emerge from Tolkien's imagination of the philological relationship among languages. We are also being invited to imagine that the expression... The words that are chosen to tell these stories in the Quintus Silmarillion and the Hlamas and elsewhere are derivative of the Anglo-Saxon expression, right? That uh, this work that we're reading is not the original work. It's only a translation. And I am perfectly willing to believe that Tolkien himself, at least partially, uh uh, I mean, And we talked about this again in The Shaping of Middleworth and we looked at some of the Anglo-Saxon stuff that he'd actually written out. Because, of course, this is not just a fiction. This is not a pure fiction. Um, there exists a great deal of extant Anglo-Saxon version of this, where Tolkien actually wrote it in Anglo-Saxon. Um, and is the situation that Tolkien took these writings that he had and rendered it into Anglo-Saxon for fun... I'm not confident of that. I think it's entirely possible that Tolkien composed it in Anglo-Saxon and translated it into Modern English, literally actually did translate it out of Anglo-Saxon into the Modern English, or at the very least, uh, as he's writing the Modern English, is actually thinking about how this would sound if it were a translation from Anglo-Saxon, and so giving it some sort of characteristic Anglo-Saxon sort of turns of thought. Um as if it's being rendered out of Anglo-Saxon. Um, yeah, yeah. And of course, Kat, you're right. That doesn't mean it wasn't for fun. Um, but, uh, but, but yes, Nancy, I agree. Tolkien is the biggest nerd of any writer I know. I completely agree with you. I feel exactly the same way. Um, uh, so yeah, I, again, you might, I mean, that was my first reaction, um, I remember, again, when I first picked up the volumes of The History of Middle-Earth, and I was looking, and I came to this passage of, like, this block of Anglo-Saxon, and I'm like, dude, he not only made up his own language, and he made up his own, you know, stories and mythology, but he translated his own mythology and stories into Anglo-Saxon prose. I'm like, that's hardcore. But, of course, when I first picked it, I didn't realize how truly hardcore it was. <laughs> right? Uh, it's not even like that. Um, anyway... Next time, um, one of the things that I definitely want to be doing as we're, we're, we're going to look at the actual substance of the Quintus Silmarillion next time. Um, we're still only up to, if I'm remembering correctly, the first two-thirds of the Quintus Silmarillion um, for next time. I want to be kind of going back and visiting um, some of the major sort of recurring issues or themes or concepts that we've looked at. Um, I want to sort of see where things are taking it. Again, in my mind, the kind of the frame of looking at this is like this is the final version of the Silmarillion, right? He's getting ready to package it and send it out into the world. Where does it end up, right? Where do we see so stories about how the how, things like how the Valar are depicted, how the orcs are depicted, how the dwarves are depicted? Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to be really interested in all those things that we've been looking at and talking about, right? So so pay attention to those things, and we'll, uh, we'll have a look at uh, where these stories settle themselves out and what we can see about the kind of story that he's telling. Um, in the in the Quintus Silmarillion for next time. All right. Hopefully next time we'll be on Wednesday, so only a few days from now. Um uh, as I, yeah, it's, it's as I said, it's my hope that that's uh, that's that's when it will be. I am going to be on the road again this coming week. Um, my internet should be fine. I, I'm confident I'll be able to have class on Wednesday. Um, those of you who remember this last happened during the Dracula. Remember in the Dracula class when I was broadcasting from the place that looked like I was in prison. And you guys were all teasing me, wondering if, like, the food was good on the inside, right? Um, I'm going to be there again, that same place. Uh, so I've done it before. I should be able to do it again. Um, and uh, yes, Cecilia, thumbs up. My voice kind of held out, so it's time to get a few hours of sleep and hope my voice can recover before tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks for uh, talking about the flamas with me tonight, and I look forward to uh, picking back up with a Quentin Silmarillion again on Wednesday night. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.